Father in heaven, thank you for this day and the blessings uh, that are all around us. Thank you for the Spirit of God who has led us to this point, has convicted us of our sin, has washed us, and has renewed us, our hearts and our minds, that we might be called the children of God. Thank you that we can be missionaries for you, and we pray that you would give us courage and faith that as we leave this place, uh, we might go forward with renewed uh, motivation and renewed understanding of how we can uh, reach souls for you. Bless us and go with us and encourage us along the way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, we finished kind of quickly, um, but... I do want to hand something out to you, just so you have it. And I'll just tell you what it is, but I'm not going to have much time to really go over it. Let's see. What's the best way to... Can I get uh, helpers? A couple helpers? Yeah. Anyway, you want to help, Julie? You can take those. Max, you can take those. Ron, you can take those. Just to give everybody one. If you uh, came to... Any of the Unlock Revelation coordinator training, this you might have gotten this, but that's okay. Um, I just pulled it from there. <clears throat> I wanted you to at least have something that would give you an idea of what's involved in uh, preparing someone for baptism. And uh, I told you that for the BibleStudyOffer.com, uh, Bible school that we're developing a um, baptismal preparation guide, and that baptismal preparation guide will be kind of a a new and improved version of this. Okay, so but I just wanted to give you an idea while I had you here of what's involved. This um, happens to be what we used for baptismal classes with Unlock Revelation, and. Uh, You'll notice on the first page there, it has 10 different points broken down in different classes that you could have. And then on the back of that is uh, several more points getting to a total of 19 different points. Those are taken straight off of a baptismal preparation card that Amazing Facts evangelists use. I discovered it when I came into a district where they had just had an Amazing Facts evangelist and they were using this little card and I really liked it. So I called out to Amazing Facts and they sent me more. And this is just not in the card form. It's just printed out. Um, it's sort of a summary of the commitments involved in baptism without necessarily having to go through the huge, uh, you know, the 28 are intended to leave no room for misunderstanding, but they also can be a little bit heady um, and, you know, a little technical. And so this is sort of a simplified version, but still gets the main points that you're trying to get the candidate to understand. So it's still got everything there, but it's in a little bit different format. Bottom line is, uh, this is what we use for Unlock Revelation with these 19 points. If you did a baptismal class and use the baptismal class cards, and then within here are some instructions on how to do a baptismal class, and we just have that all laid out um, for a few pages. And then um, you come to a point where there's a little chart on the bottom of page 73. Again, I, the reason these are paged the way they are is I just took it straight from our training handbook for coordinator training. But 
Um, you'll see it says supplementary resources to help gain decisions. You guys with me? Okay, good. Um, you need to understand. Let me see if I can find the point where it really says this. Yeah. Um, flip to the other side of that on, page, on number four on page 72 where it says the baptismal classes are not intended to be a comprehensive explanation of every topic. Because uh, when you do a baptismal class, as a general rule, it isn't a comprehensive type of thing. Um, going on, it says most of the topics are already covered during the evangelistic meetings, and the baptismal class simply reviews these and fills in the blanks for certain other beliefs. The baptismal preparation actually occurs in four complementary ways. Evangelistic meetings, baptismal classes, one-on-one -on -one baptism preparation meetings, and carefully chosen books and other resources. So let's say you're not having an evangelistic meeting, you're just giving somebody a Bible study. Well, the point here is, the principle is the same, and that is that you prepare people for baptism in more than one way. And one of the primary ways that I would encourage you um, to be leading people toward decisions is by giving them supplementary resources on the very issues that they need to make decisions on for baptism. So that's why this chart is on the bottom of page 73. That was just to give you an idea. Um, when I'm doing a baptismal class and I'm getting ready to cover uh, the Bible and the Godhead, I will give them a little pocketbook from Amazing Facts on the Trinity. And I'll encourage them to read it. And then, bef before I start talking about the Sabbath or what have you, I'll give them a little Sabbath booklet, pocketbook. And then, when I start getting into lifestyle things, before... The you know, if we're having a meeting and we're talking about a topic, and I know that the next time we meet, we're going to talk about unclean meats, I'll give them a pocketbook like Hogs and Other Hazards by Joe Cruz, and I'll have them review it before we meet. Okay, they should have already, probably, if they're to that point, gotten some exposure already, but it's just what I'm trying to say is the more. Uh, people hear and are presented with something, the more the conviction grows. This same thing happens, have you ever had somebody who was convicted on the Sabbath and then they didn't come, you know, you didn't see them for a while, and so then you went to visit with them and they were, you know, kind of dismissing everything? The first thing that I do is I just start to casually re-give the Bible study on the Sabbath to them. I don't open up a study guide and what have you. I just kind of say, well, um, you know, I, I can understand why you could have a question, but maybe it would help to just kind of remind you where we were coming from from the Bible on that and so we can have some talking points. And then I'll begin to talk about, you know, remember that the Sabbath was not for the Jews. It was given in Genesis long before there was a Jew and God set the Sabbath apart and made it holy. And then in Exodus chapter 20, we find that God gives uh, the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, it clearly doesn't say a seventh day, but it says, remember, the seventh day, meaning that it's a specific day. And it says, remember it to keep it holy. And you can't keep a day holy unless you have, uh, it has already been made holy. And then I kind of talk about it. So that's why that Genesis was important. If you remember, we talked about that. Then you go to the New Testament and Jesus, as His custom was in Luke 4.16, keeps the Sabbath. And then you keep going in the Apostles. You find it all through the book of Acts. But in Acts 17, it actually says that it was Paul's custom to keep the Sabbath. 
And then you go to Matthew 24, and you find that Jesus says that even at the end of time, when there's going to be great tribulation, pray that your flight not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. So Jesus actually expected that His followers would be keeping the Sabbath at the end of time, else He wouldn't have mentioned it to them. And then you look at Jesus' followers after His death, and it says that uh, the female disciples there in Luke 23, verse 56 They refused to continue their labor of love, of of making those spices, and they rested according to the commandment of the Sabbath. And then all the way to Isaiah 66, we find that even in the new earth, from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come together to worship before Him. Now, if I do that in about, how long did that take me? Three minutes? What, What am I doing? What's happening? What am I trying to do? What's the word I'm looking for? Okay, you're reviewing. Okay, reinforcing. Yes, who said that? What what was the word? We're by what? Conviction. Okay, no one makes a decision without conviction. Where does conviction come from? The Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit use for conviction? The word. Every time. Okay, so if you want to revive conviction, what do you have to bring back? The Word. You bring back the Word, you show the clarity of the Word again, the Spirit of God uses it because the Word is the sword of the Spirit, and He starts cutting right away. And all of a sudden, all those convictions start growing again. You know, They were honestly, when you sat down with them, able to dismiss it and say, I really don't think it's much of a big deal. They forgot. I mean, quite literally. They kind of put it all on the back shelf. They kind of rationalized until they felt they could. And then when you bring it all back to them, you're reviving conviction. And uh, so, you know, the whole concept of soul winning really is allowing the Holy Spirit to work. And the Holy Spirit works through the Word, so you need to be people of the Word. And when you're wanting to revive conviction, you bring bring that on back. So ultimately, whether it's preparing them with pocketbooks that are full of the Word or whatever, you're trying to give them as many things that bring conviction as possible because that is what leads to decision in every case. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the best thing to do um, with something like that, if they, sometimes people, let me say this, I hated to read. I'm still not uh, like a natural reader type of person. Um, Like I was Cliff Notes in high school. I didn't read anything. I was so proud of myself in fifth grade. I read Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. And it was like the first full book I ever read. And, uh, but every other thing that I did was basically watch TV and movies. I mean, it was boring to read a book. It didn't fly off the page. It took forever. Uh, You know, it just, I had no interest whatsoever in reading. When at the age of 22, just because there was no other way for me to meet my curiosity, I just decided to browse a little bit in the Bible, and the Bible gripped me with eternal reality, suddenly all of a sudden I started reading like a, you know, I mean I was, and it was because I was interested. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, any, you talk to people who don't like to read, they will read what they are interested in, okay? So I'm just bringing that up to say 
it could be that there's just not a real kindled interest quite yet. That reading will come around. Uh, when that doesn't mean you don't have to, you know, people who are not natural readers have to fight to read as they get older and what have you. I mean, it's just something that's an intentional thing you have to do. But, uh, but interest is what stokes that. But what I would say is use the video, the DVDs, Doug Bachelor DVDs, you know, use Evangelistic Series DVDs. Or something that is very helpful is the uh, Anchor Point Film DVDs. I don't know if you've seen those. There's like, they're like documentaries, but they're very well done on Daniel 2, Daniel 9, the Sabbath, the State of the Dead, um, Antichrist. They have like seven different topics, and they're the power-packed topics. So if you look up Anchor Point Films DVDs and Google that, um, you can get them at the ABC as well. Unfortunately, yeah, it's Chad and Fadia Cruiser that do them, but they're like 15 bucks is what they're selling them for, but that's just what it, the way it is. But they're very good, and they did put a lot of money into developing them. So I just check one out and see what you think. The one on Daniel 9 is awesome. I mean, I really like it because it really talks about the Messiah, the prophecies of the Messiah. It's very good for someone who's really new or what have you. Anyway, I just wanted to show you how that works, that you, you give them resources to help people with decisions. I always do that. And then what you have here is a baptismal class outline, and it just kind of shows you for each of those 19 points the types of things you want to try to cover, okay? And you can just look at that at your leisure. But let me just ask you to tell me, um, what are the different commitments? Where did the, oh, here we go. Can I get rid of my email address here? You all wrote that down? Okay. Um, what are the different practical commitments that someone should make before baptism? Now, why is... Let me, let me say something about keeping the Sabbath. When you go through a Bible study, you do a Bible study on the Sabbath, don't you? So that means you have that covered, right? No. Because when you do a Bible study on the Sabbath it does not cover how to keep the Sabbath. There might be a little mention here or there, but as a general rule, what I do is in an evangelistic meeting or what have you, first you're convincing them of the fact that the Sabbath is still valid, it's part of the law of God, and it's the seventh day. Then when it comes time, they want to be baptized, and you come time to prepare them for baptism, or you're in you know, further development of the studying, you're going to talk about how to keep the Sabbath, and you're going to talk about various things. What are the things you're going to talk about? <laughs> Let's put that down. What? What's that? Okay, that's right. Um, so sundown to sundown. Preparation day and the importance of preparation day. Uh-huh. No work. We would say uh, also... No, I'm just going to, there's probably a better word for it, but contract work, right, right, no buying, selling, <laughs> no eating out, no Michigan, Michigan State, right, no little league games, whatever. <laughs> no, this is all no. You got that? That's clear. <clears throat> now, let me. Yes, Cameron. Okay. 
So then you, so then you've got, this is very important, thank you for bringing it up. Many people struggle with the idea that they can uh, just keep the Sabbath at home and go to church on Sunday or what have you. So they need to be clear on this. In fact, in every evangelistic series I do, I always bring it out myself. I plant a question in the Q&A box um, to answer this question. And I simply say, you know, Leviticus 23.3 says that the Sabbath is a day of holy convocation. It's a sacred assembly. Jesus not only kept the Sabbath as his custom was, but went to church on the Sabbath, went to the synagogue. And also, thank you, brother. And also the... Uh, uh, Isaiah 66, which says that in the new earth, all flesh shall come to what? Worship before me. So the Sabbath, to keep the Sabbath requires not just uh, something you do at home alone or resting, but it also involves a gathering with like-minded believers. So gathering together for worship, uh, outreach, and other doing good, which means that you also have to talk to them about why Building your neighbor's deck is not necessarily what's meant by doing good, right? You have, so you have to lay out the principles. Well, when Jesus said do good, he was talking about uh, urgent, you know, helping an ox in the ditch. So there was suffering involved and what have you. So you have to look at the context. And, you know, you're helping to explain what you know about keeping the Sabbath. And then basically what I will do is I'll show them Exodus 20. And from Exodus 20... You can clearly talk about no work, what different times of work. I go to Nehemiah 13 to talk about no buying and selling, no eating out, etc. I go to Isaiah 58 to talk about the principles of spiritual versus, you know, my own personal hobbies or interests or what have you. It doesn't say not to delight yourselves, not to take pleasure. It just says you're supposed to delight yourself in the Lord. So the Sabbath is a day where you're focusing on your relationship with the Lord. So the yeses have to do with worship, outreach, and your personal relationship with God, your relationship with the church and family. What's that? Right, right. Yes, yes to rest, you know. Yes to nature. Uh-huh, we talk about that when we hear in Exodus 20. So the point, yeah, family, thank you. So the point is that... The only way that they're going to know that is if you kind of scripturally explain that to them. And you're not going to get it from the Bible study that you had in the set. You understand what I'm saying? That happens in, when you're preparing for baptism as a general rule. Mm -hmm. Probably wasn't Ephesians. Which, uh, was it on the Sabbath? Oh, I was talking about worship. Leviticus 23.3. And uh, Isaiah 66 and Luke 4.16. Um, I don't recall using Ephesians. Um, okay, this was Exodus 20. This, this was Nehemiah 13. I'm sorry that I don't have the verses exactly memorized. I just turn there and get to where I'm going. This is Isaiah 58, verse 13 and 14. Yeah. Okay, so keeping the Sabbath. That's good. What other practical commitments are involved in preparation for baptism? Okay, but that's not practical. I'm looking for lifestyle, practical. Okay, so uh, we could say, <coughs> we'll say health. 
And I put those, when I'm talking to them, I put them in two categories. One is unclean meat. They, it's time to say no to unclean meat, right? That needs to be a commitment that they make. Yeah? Thank you. Nehemiah 13, 15 to 22 on the uh, buying and selling. Okay, unclean meat. And then the, what, I, what I say here is mind-altering and addictive drugs. Hold on, hold on. That are non-prescription. So what does that include? Alcohol is mind-altering and addictive, right? Tobacco and <coughs> uh, in whatever form. Caffeinated beverages are mind-altering and addictive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there may be some here because of how, uh, how little some places uh, instruct on this that aren't even aware of that. But Seventh-day Adventists have always held that caffeinated beverages, and in Ellen White's day it was tea and coffee primarily, but today we have all kinds of caffeinated beverages that are very spiked in, in caffeine, are very, um, are, are very addictive. And though they are not, you know, I would never say that it's as potent as alcohol or what have you, but it is mind-altering and it is addictive. And Christians should just not dally with things that can, they can be mastered by. Okay, there's no reason to. So we would encourage at that time, I usually give my testimony when I quit drinking coffee and what have you, and we encourage um, the uh, drinking of, of drinks that might be alternatives like Roma or what have you or caffeine-free types of things. If you're going to drink pop here or there, drink Sprite, drink whatever. And uh, in, the, in the actual vows, it states that we would not um, take other narcotics and other drugs and in Ellen White's writing she actually speaks of caffeinated beverages like tea and coffee as narcotics um, so you know some people say oh well, that's not in there but in reality it is um, and if you read the statements by Ellen White they're pretty pointed um, to the point of saying it's clearly a sinful indulgence and she says these are things that should be discarded and they're not to be put on the same category. And she's talking about uh, tea, coffee, unclean meats, uh, you know, tobacco, alcohol. She says these are not to be put on the same. These are to be born in front. And things like uh, meat, cheese, etc., are not to be put on the same level. She says these things that are to be taken moderately are not the same as the poisonous narcotics, which are to be totally discarded. And, uh, and I don't know if I have that in there. I've, I've got... Some quotes in here. I'm not sure if I have that in there, but <laughs> okay, we're gonna. You need to go to the uh, spirit of prophecy class that Pastor Howard had, but okay, that's true. But let me. I'll I'll go ahead and try to answer that real quick, but then I probably won't go into a lot of detail. And if Pastor Howard wants to clarify, he can. But I uh, I read those statements, and my first reaction as a Seventh Day Adventist, I. I, I really did put it on the same level when I read it because of how strongly it sounded. Then I came across where Ellen White talked about how um, she did here or there um, take cheese a couple of times. 
And I thought to myself, well, why would she do that? When it sounded, her, her language sounded like it was on the same level as the totally discard, like alcohol or what have you. But she said that occasionally, when it was passed to her out of courtesy or whatever, but hardly any time, just a couple times, that she would take it. So that's interesting. Then you read the stories about her interactions, and there was one case where somebody was trying to tag James White out and try to get him to eat cheese. The whole thing's kind of interesting. Right? But anyway, uh, read about Lucretia sometime. But anyway, it talks about this story and says, yeah, you passed it to my husband, James, or whatever, and then you know he took it as we occasionally will do or whatever, because what was happening was they were eating, they had taken some, and then people started saying, oh, Ellen White eats cheese or whatever, and they started doing this. She was trying to say that's not exactly the reality. We did take some. Then she said something about James not taking it, if I remember right. And then it mentions that they put it back in the cupboard. And I remember reading that and thinking, that's interesting. Because I don't put, I wouldn't put cheese in the cupboard. I mean, I just think that wouldn't work out. And it, it dawned on me in that, that there is a difference between um, the preservation of and the, um, I guess, I don't know how you would word it, but how they would, yeah, the whole process by which they developed the cheese was different. Now, is cheese a health food? Absolutely not. Um, is there a better way? There absolutely is. I do think a vegan diet is a better diet, and I do believe that uh, God has provided ways for us to cook and prepare food so that we do not have to uh, eat in any dairy, really. But ultimately, it's not on the same level, and she never put it on the same level. And there are statements where I could show you where she clearly puts them in different tiers. And cheese is in a different tier. It's not in that same tier. So um, I would just say, taking the whole wealth of, of insight that we have from her, that it's something that we would not consider a health food. It's something that we should be trying to limit in our diet. But it's also not on the same level as a sin, if I could put it so bluntly. You understand what I mean by a sin? It's not a sin but it is something that we should be, as we get closer to the end, looking to limit in our diet if we're wanting to be healthy. I saw your hand up. And she, and she even says moderately, which means that moderate use would not be considered sin. You understand what I'm saying? And uh, another point that is often brought out is when her strong statement in Ministry of Healing, where she says um, that... Uh, it's un cheese is unfit for food. It should not be entered into the stomach, etc. When they translated that into the German edition, they, it was such a staple, certain um, types of cheeses in their diet, that they asked Ellen White if they could um, translate it as they felt that the intent was, which is strong, sharp cheeses. Is that the language? Strong, sharp cheeses. And she permitted and they actually translated it, strong, sharp cheeses should not. So um, there was a difference even in the different types of cheeses that she made. So anyway, this is a good, you know, this is something for the Spirit of Prophecy class, but this is a good lesson for anyone who, you know, you obviously want to be wise in, and you want to be obedient and you want to be responsive, but you also want to take all that the council says and make sure that you're... Um, understanding it. And in my personal case, 
it took me a while before I even came across any of that. I actually had to notice some people that I highly respected who were okay with a little bit of cheese. And I'm like, hmm, those brothers are not as faithful as I thought. And, uh, and then I started exploring a little bit. And if you ever have a question, um, Elder William Fagel at the White Estate, I mean, boy, I started wearing out his email. I'd email him and say, what does Ellen White, you know, I, I'm hearing this and this is what I'm doing, but I see this and, you know, is there some other statement or other things that I should be considering? And he's heard just about every question in the book and he'll fire back different statements by Ellen White that will help add a little bit of insight. It's the same thing with the Bible. You know, you could read, yeah, 101 questions on Ellen White. And, and those are all responses that he gave to people who asked questions. Uh, there's one on chocolate, one on cheese, one on, you know, whatever. Um, but, uh, oh, he said that right when I was a bit, I have to say something really important, but I forgot what it was. No, that's what he said. Yeah, it's on Ellen White. That's what it is. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I lost it. So I'll go over here. <clears throat> yes, thank you, Ingrid. That's right. That's good. And what, just to give you an idea of what I'm saying here, um, ultimately, yeah, and I'll get Joel in just a second. Um, when I present health in preparation for baptism, what I actually say is, you know, we believe that the body and the health of the body that Jesus cared about, if you look at his ministry, it was a ministry of healing. And he cared about the health of the body. And as Christians, we believe the Bible teaches that the body and the spiritual health physical and spiritual health go hand in hand. And so we are strong supporters and educators on healthful principles, on prevention of disease, on all those things. And we go over the eight, you know, doctors, right? New start, nutrition and exercise and water and sunlight and temperance and uh, air, fresh air and rest and trust in God. And then I say, um, so we recognize that those things are progressive. And if somebody's making a decision to follow Christ, and, you know, you drink one glass of water uh, a day, you know, it's not like everybody has to immediately drink eight glasses of water a day, but we educate that you should, you know, begin to do those things. However, there are some things, some areas that are um, contrary to the scriptural guidance given, and those areas are ones that we should make a commitment to discard when we're making a decision to follow Christ. And that would be the, the, the meats that are clearly outlined as unclean and abominable in Scripture, as well as anything addictive or mind-altering that ultimately would be to defile the body temple that the Scripture says we should not defile. And so those would be things like alcohol, tobacco, caffeinated beverages, etc. Things that really are just addictive in nature. And so we do say progressive, but we don't say progressive with these two areas. That's the point. In other words, these are the areas of commitment. That's the whole point. These are the minimum. You understand what I'm saying? It's not like you're presenting it that way, but you need to know what those decisions are that you're seeking to lead them to make as a starting point in their Christian experience. And that's you know when they're yielding to Christ as Lord of their life. Okay, Joel had his hand up. Well, temperance is one of the eight laws of health. And when you give, when you talk about the eight laws, you basically usually talk about alcohol, tobacco, etc. So it's part of it. 
Um, certainly it's under there, and if you look on the health one, on the baptismal thing, you'll see a lot more than what I have here. All I'm showing you here are those areas that you're trying to get decisions on as starting commitment points, okay? So, ah, I needed that water. This, if you're preparing someone for baptism, they need to make decisions to do these things. So you're helping them as you're meeting with them and you're preparing for baptism and you're saying, okay, well, let's look at this one on health. And you're kind of walking them through our understanding of health according to the Bible. And then you're helping them also to understand that there are some things according to Scripture that Christians should lay aside. And if we're going to be obedient to Christ, then we need to lay them aside. And inasmuch as baptism is laying aside the old life, being raised to a new life of obedience to Christ as Lord of our life, those are commitments that we should really make before we're baptized. And you just share that with them. And okay, okay. Now, if they have a struggle with something, then you help them, you know, through the struggle, obviously. And that's a big part of the process. Okay, what else? Practical stuff. Okay, so dress and adornment. What is the uh, minimum bar? Okay, jewelry. Now, are you going to talk to them about modesty in general? Yeah. So what length of skirt do you tell them is good enough for baptism and what length is not good enough for baptism? <laughs> Below the knee. Um, unfortunately, you might give them guidance, but, but you're not going to draw a line for baptism. That's the point. Do you know why? Because the Scripture doesn't draw a line. So if you're drawing a line for baptism, you're doing it on your own. Okay? You follow what I'm saying? Um, and that's why, you know, some people will say, you know, I don't understand. You make a big deal about jewelry, but there's these people with these big fancy cars in the parking lot, and you don't make a big deal about that, and they've got big fancy watches and whatever. Well, here's the problem. In Scripture, it tells us that we should not dress with costly clothing, but it does not tell us how much is good enough and how much is not good enough and what have you. So all we can do is teach on the principle, right? Nothing in Scripture says, you know, if you get a car that's 19900 that is okay, but over 20000 is, you know, over the top. I mean, who's drawing that line? When Scripture does not draw the line, we cannot draw the line. But when Scripture does draw the line, we'd better draw the line. That's the idea. Do you understand? So, Scripture does draw the line on golden pearls and precious stones, which is representative of adornment or jewelry. It does not, uh, we do not believe, address functional items like watches and things that tie clips or things that have a function, although those need to be chosen with simplicity and modesty. So, anyway, that one. Okay, what else? Okay, entertainment. So, what's the line? What's the minimum when it comes to entertainment? What's the decision that you're trying to get before baptism for entertainment? Okay, here's what I do when I'm preparing for someone for baptism. With There's principles and stuff, but I do draw a line here. I just call it sinful entertainment. 
Now, do some people watch too much TV? Yes, okay? But this is where there's some progressive stuff going on. You know, is, 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 is news okay? Is the Discover Channel okay? Is, you know, whatever. You know, we're not going to draw all those lines, but we do give principles, and then we also say, but when someone is baptized, at a minimum, they should make a commitment to Christ to eliminate any sinful entertainment out of their life. That means any music that is um, clearly uh, suggestive or immoral or distasteful or what have you, it clearly means uh, you know movies that are shoot 'em up movies, horror movies, uh, adultery, etc. You know they're going to clean out their libraries. What they're going to do, but the bottom line is, I mean, I remember having a, a study with a guy, and I said all that. I thought he got it. I was I was having you know studies with he and his wife, preparation for baptism, and I would go over to their uh, home, and I remember going over to their home, and right there by you know I had been studying with for a while, and we were getting real close to baptism. And they were like, yeah, 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 I'm ready to be baptized. Right by their uh, TV was uh, actually in the room that we were sitting in, right near where I was, was a, uh, a DVD with, you know, Commando or something, you know, some shoot 'em up thing that obviously had been watched here recently. And so we're sitting there and, and I did not feel comfortable. I mean, I was basically getting ready to go through with the baptism. They had told me verbally that they understood what I was saying. They had told me that they had eliminated sinful entertainment, what have you. And I just kind of, you know, sometimes you're in the middle of studying, you're like, what's the use if they're playing a game here or whatever? And I just knelt down and I picked that up and I said, you know, I mean, we talked about this, but this stuff has got to go. I said, I mean, this is incompatible with someone who is claiming to make a commitment to follow Christ as the Lord of their life. I mean, these are the things that he died for. And suddenly he got it. <laughs> I mean, like, got it. And sometimes, I'm just telling you, you need, Ellen White uses some words when she talks about preparation for baptism. She uses these words. She talks about people who are still attached to the world, etc. And she says, they should be faithfully dealt with. What do you think that means? Faithfully dealt with. That means sometimes you have to shoot straight. You have to be honest with them. You have to appeal to their soul. It does no good to baptize them and, and not tell them that and have them under the impression that they can go on that way. I mean, you don't care about the baptism. You care about their soul. The baptism is only of value if they are surrendering their soul to Christ. So that's what you really care about. If, if you start caring more about the baptism and you're just kind of sweeping stuff under the rug that you know exists in their life, then turn in your credentials. I mean, you need to care about their soul. That's what you're there for. And it should bother you if that stuff is going on. You know, there's different ways to ask things. I remember early on I would ask, like, here, I'll give you another one here. Um, I would ask people, if I would study tithe, and I would ask them, after the study on tithe, I would say, so do you understand? Does that make sense to you? Oh, yes. That's how I used to do it. And then I started, if 
finding out that people would be baptized and then they weren't returning tithe. And so now, I don't just ask, does that make sense to you? I ask, so is that something you've begun to do? Those are two different questions. Those are two different questions. Lots of times people will, you know, they want to be baptized based on their intentions. You understand what I'm saying? You're not baptizing based on their intentions. You're baptizing them based on their commitment. And this is not like, you know, they're, th- these, are, these are not stop the world kind of commitments. I mean, we like to make them look like they're, you know, gigantic, whatever. But, you know, you can do it. By the grace of God, they can do this. I mean, these are things that just have to do with them making a commitment to follow Christ. And they just test whether or not it's, it's just intentions or if it's actual commitments. So you need to actually ask people. And if somebody says that everything's fine and you see them walking around with their necklace, I hate to say it, but when you get in the meeting, you've got to bring it up. I mean, that's the tough part. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where, you know, having your, your soul is at stake as well as theirs. And, you know, I've had many times where I've thought someone's gotten it. Yeah, oh, I think they're there, but then I'm watching. Oh, no, it's still on. You know, <laughs> i got to say something. i got to say something. And then you sit down with them. You say, you know, you try to, I try to do it many different ways. Like, take, I want you to take this card home with you, and I want you to read it in the first person. All these commitments, read them in the first person. Because, like, if you were to read the one on uh, page 69... Number 17, the last sentence on page 69, number 17, says, we will follow in the humble steps of Jesus and not wear jewelry or immodest clothing. And I say, I want you to read this whole card and I want you to put yourself in the first person and ask yourself, am I comfortable making the commitments that are in this card if if, if it's my name that's there? And if there's anything that you have any question at all about, then I want you to circle that, put a question mark, and next time when we get together, we'll talk about it. So I give them a chance to you know, let their own conscience deal with it instead of me having to deal with it. But then they come back and say, no, pastor, everything's fine. <laughs> you know, and, they're like, and then you've got to bring it up, right? You say, well, you know, I noticed that, um, that we've studied the issue on jewelry, but I noticed that you still wear your necklace. Do you want to talk to me about that? Is that something that... Uh, is, a, is a struggle for you and then you let them talk and you find out where they're at and then you try to work through it but oftentimes it comes down to the soul winner having a, an uncomfortable conversation with the candidate it happens I mean I'm, I've got some pastors in the room are there, are there many baptisms that don't have a moment of uncomfortable you know confrontation almost where you're having to make some discomfort and then lead them to admit something and then actually wrestle with the text and then make that decision right there in your presence I mean it happens all the time and it's the heart of soul winning I see some hands now yes and a frequent one a frequent one is the Sabbath the Sabbath you come to the Sabbath and there'll be you know well you know I don't know, I mean, in my situation, like, I've been working for this company for 40 years, and it's like, absolutely, there's no way, if I don't do it, there's no one to cover for me, and this is absolutely whatever, and I, you know, so they kind of think that that's okay, because, you know, I, 
God wouldn't expect, you understand what I'm saying? So you then have to break the news to them. <laughs> and we certainly explain that. But if you have somebody who's, who's deeply convicted, like I had an EMT, and I said, well, of course, an EMT, you know, no problem, right? He later came back to me and he said, Pastor, I just feel really funny because, yes, I'm an EMT, and yes, we make emergency runs, but the truth is I only make a couple emergency runs on Sabbath, and the rest of the time they want me to be doing the laundry and the thing and sweeping the thing and whatever. And he came to me under conviction and then ended up going to his employer and saying, look, I'm willing to do this, but this I'm just not comfortable with or what have you. And the one thing about exceptions is, boy, everybody likes to be the exception. And you'll have people, I mean, people will say, well, what if, what if, what if? And I'm like, look, you know, somehow, I mean, I had somebody say, what if you get off work at 5 o'clock, Sabbath is right after that, you can't get gas because you, you know, and they've given me this whole thing, and I'm thinking, why is it that I never find myself in these strange situations? And I tell you why I don't find myself in these strange situations. Because I, right, I don't, I don't want to be in those situations. I try to avoid those situations. And so there's always going to be exceptions, but people like to make the exception the rule. So, you know, as much as we like to communicate that there are exceptions, we need, we need to see that the spirit of someone is that they want to be obedient. They actually are wanting to be faithful. Uh, yes, Emmanuel. Show up at church. <laughs> Have you read the baptismal vows? Yeah, I mean, what would you question? I'm just asking, which, which, which ones, no, I mean, what, what I'm saying is, what would anyone question that should be, okay, okay, so, so on this issue, um, yes, the world church is very clear, like, if you were to read what the world church says about the wedding band, where it allows for the wedding band, why is it saying that, it, that a wedding band will not prevent you from church membership if no jewelry would prevent you from? You understand what I'm saying? Why? So the World Church is clear on this. The latest statement by the World Church, which was on jewelry, was back all the way back in 72. The NAD affirmed it in 1986, and it basically states that we still believe that this is the standard that should be upheld. And if you read, more important to me is the inspired counsel. So I, when, you know, because as a pastor, I don't, look, believe me, um, the lower that the bar has to be for someone, I don't want to make the bar higher than what God is making the bar. You know what I'm saying? Because then I'm getting in the way, I'm causing problems, and it's only making it more difficult for me anyway. So I don't want that at all. So I had to, for my own conscience sake, just do some searching. And I wish I had brought it now. I didn't know we were going to get into all these conversations. I wish I would have brought it now. But I have a whole compilation, Spirit of Prophecy compilation, in which she speaks specifically about jewelry, and she speaks about how those who maintain the fashions of the world, she says they should not be... Uh, allowed as members of the church. She, she's speaking about in preparation for baptism. Now, 
Now, when she speaks about the fashions of the world, I mean, if there's one thing that, and I've got other statements that kind of tie to it, that she's very firm on, it's that of jewelry. So I believe that we're on solid ground there. On, the, on this issue, unclean meats, I don't think anybody questions that one. On uh, alcohol, tobacco, and caffeinated beverages, I stand on the spirit of prophecy statements. Let's put it this way. She has two statements. Uh, we shared one of them in which it spoke about uh, each of those items as being sinful indulgences. In one case, the statement is even shorter, and it says tea and coffee drinking is a sin. And that's just, you know. So in my you know, simple mind, if something is sinful, if it's a sin, then it really should be laid aside before when someone's making a commitment to Christ. If it's a known outward sin, then they ought to do that. Now, we all have character flaws, and none of us are perfect, and we baptize people who are not perfect. We know that. But if it's something that's an action, that's a clearly laid out thing that is sin for you to do, then we should yield that prior to being baptized. Um, and you go right down the line. Now, keeping the Sabbath, um, you know, it all depends on if you want to say that, that, you know, eating out and whatever is totally okay. And I think, again, I just go to the spirit of prophecy. The world church is supportive of the position that we've discussed. So, when we talk in the Michigan conference, this may sound a little bit, I don't know what you want to call it, but we, we try very careful to say that basically our position is the world church position. That's our position. Not every place believes that because not every place is aligned with the world church, unfortunately. But, the, but we believe that this is the world church position. Somebody might argue it with us, but then we would go to those evidences that I've just shared. That's what we would do. Now, one, another one here, let me just put something up here because i got all these questions coming up, is uh, real quickly, marriage, you will often study with people who are living together. And I've had, last series I did, I had two couples who said, yes, we're living together, but we're not having sex. We, you know, we made a commitment, a decision a while back that we were not going to do it. He agreed to it. Da, 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 da. We're, you know, genuine about it. We're just waiting until such and such a time until we went. <laughs> okay. Okay. Number one, as, as sincere as people sound, um, and as much as you want to give people the benefit of the doubt, we can't be totally assured of that. But number two, there's a problem, and I, and I will express this to them. The, the problem here is, you know, you live together, and you're not married, and when you come to church or you go anywhere, you're not going to be able to go up to everybody and say, hey, by the way, this, yeah, we do live together, but we're not having sex, so it's, it's, it's good. We're, we're not, you know, you're not going to do that, so you're automatically putting a stain on the Christian name that you bear because you're not going to, people don't know what you're telling me. And so it really, the only um, appropriate, proper thing for you to do if you'd like to be baptized is first be married or separate, you know, temporarily until you're married and find, a, you know, a way to do that and, and then you can be baptized and then you can be married or what have you, but, but that living arrangement 
is just not um, appropriate, even if they claim that they're not doing anything. You understand what I'm saying? Anyway, yes. Uh, you're saying that I'm the Bible worker, and and the pastor. Yeah. I would probably, in that situation, and I'm just being frank with you, but I'm not the authority on this, but I would probably study with them. I would tell them what I believe, what I believe the Seventh-day Adventist Church teaches. I would say, you know, personally, I do not believe that you are going to feel good about making a commitment to this Christ and, this, and becoming a part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church while being outside of what the Seventh-day Adventist Church believes practices. Now, you know, I'm not here to say that the pastor will or won't baptize you if you do that, but I'm telling you that I believe that you're going to feel better about your commitment if you make this commitment. I don't think you want to step in and say, I don't care what the pastor says, I'm going to... But I think that you can be honest about your convictions and, and appeal to them, um, you know, without... Because here's what happens. If you are in a situation where you have a pastor who's not thoroughly Seventh-day Adventist, forgive me for saying it, if you're in that situation, you still and and you are trying to build a relationship with individuals that will prepare them for heaven. And that's your where your conscience is. And you know, regardless of the baptism, you're going to continue mentoring that person afterwards. You're going to try to connect them to, you know, soul winning, conservative minded people who are going to be active in the church and what have you. So you're you're building something beyond just getting them ready for the baptism. So you want to start building that right in them. This and you're going to bring them to Michigan camp meeting. You know, you're going to do all that stuff. I brought people to Michigan camp meeting from Ohio. Anyway, yes. Yeah. Um, okay, I don't, I don't fully understand the scenario, but um, first of all, I wouldn't call anyone a so-called Adventist pastor. <laughs> I do believe that, that there are Adventist pastors uh, who have been just unfortunately taught in a system that has led them to not fully understand the church's position. So you never know really where someone's at. I mean, be careful about that. But, but let's say that you come into a church and that is the culture of the church. I mean, look, I was a lay person long before I was pastoring. I, I was a lay person for eight to ten years. And uh, I would have vespers in my home. I would have Bible studies in my home. And I almost had, and I don't want to make this sound wrong because I was very supportive of the church, but almost a church within a church. <laughs> I mean, I would have interests and study with them and get them ready for baptism, and then they would come to Vespers at my home, and we would all, you know, and I would basically be trying to develop disciples and disciple people. I would speak positively about the pastor. I would be supportive of the pastor, but I would work in a way that I felt convicted was the best way to work. Now, when you first come into a place, you don't have that. So you've got to start finding people. You've got to start building relationships. You've got to win people's hearts. You know, you may have people in the congregation who are very winnable. I mean, every congregation has people who are not fully where you think maybe they should be, but the reasons are not what you think they might be. And they're very uh, open and, and honest-hearted. And it just takes a little influence and a little talking and a little what have you before you start building relationships. And, you know, so it depends on the scenario, depends on the, the people that you're with, but you have to use work wisely, work supportively, uh, but work faithfully in any setting that you're in. So anyway, um, 
Okay, I think we went through some of the big hitters, but I would also put on here devotional life. I always talk to them about the devotional life and try to get them in their devotional life while we're still preparing for baptism. And I will talk to them about forgiveness. Uh, I'm not talking about receiving it. I'm talking about giving it. I don't want somebody who's bearing, carrying around grudges being baptized while they, you know, whatever. I want to make sure that, there's, that they're dealing with that kind of thing. So these are some of the main ones. I don't go through like a machine gun and say, okay, dut, 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 with all these practical things. I'm just telling you, they come in the context of that entire 19 points, right? But I'm telling you because you have to know that these are the areas where the rubber meets the road. These are the areas where they're going to be tested in their consecration and their commitment. And so you have to be you know, clear on these areas yourself and then be full of sympathy and patience, but the ability to you know, really encourage someone to take a stand. And uh, God will bless you with it. So anyway, I wanted you to see that. We're going to be developing here in Michigan a baptismal preparation guide. Um, and it's going to cover all of these areas and have a, a sheet in the end that will kind of, you'll see what it'll look like when it's all done. But it'll be a little booklet to help for those who would like it in preparation for baptism. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.